start out with, I would like to tell you about the necessity for meditation, that it isn't just something extra one can do, but that it is the only way that we can expand our consciousness to levels which are otherwise unavailable to us. There are some very telling indications how we usually operate. Saint Bonaventura called it the three eyes. The first one is the eye of the flesh. The second one, the eye of reason. And the third one, the eye of contemplation or meditation. So we need to establish and cultivate the third eye. But please don't think that I'm talking about a spot on the forehead. That's just fantasy. This is a way of expressing our potential. Now, in the perennial philosophy, this is called the gross, the mental, and the causal. And in psychology, this is called the subconscious, the subconscious, and the superconscious. It doesn't matter what we call it. We've all got to do it. It's the only way that we can have an expansion in our whole understanding and in our whole perspective. Now we all know the eye of the flesh. We've been using it and using it and trying to find some satisfaction through it. It's our sense contact. We try to find something beautiful and wonderful to see, to hear, to taste, to touch, to smell, and we can get it. And because we can get it, we can get very nice things to see and to hear and to taste and to touch and to smell. Why not? I mean, there's always flowers and incense, and there's always good music, and there's always pretty landscapes. And with all that, we get the mistaken idea. The more we can get of all that, the happier we'll be. And we might even use the second level, the mental level, to kid ourselves. It's all beautiful, so we will be also beautiful people. In reality, what happens with our sense contacts is that they are constantly disappearing again. We can't keep seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling the same thing constantly, be it ever so pleasant. Just imagine eating some very nice piece of cake. Tastes great. Well, for how long can you keep on doing that? More than 10 minutes results in misery, mental and physical misery. And the same goes for everything else that we do with our senses. 
But the whole world is trying to get it that way because it promises us pleasure and it very often keeps it for a few moments. We can look at a lovely landscape and be very delighted by it. But for how long? And then we have to look at something else again. Or at a beautiful painting. How long can one look? One can force oneself to look a little longer than usual. But how long? And how many paintings? And how many landscapes? And how many pretty girls? Or a handsome man? How often can one look? It's the same with hearing. How often and how long can we hear? The most beautiful music, it's got to stop and then it's got to start again. And again and again and again. And who would like to sit at home listening to music constantly from morning to night, from morning to night, from morning to night? There's no way that we can do that. Our senses are geared towards a constant breakdown of it so that we can be alert to outer dangers and difficulties which we can recognize through the senses. Our senses are our survival packet. If we don't see, it's much more difficult to survive. If we don't hear, it's also more difficult. So there are survival packet and everybody's trying to use them as a pleasure park. Now, obviously, there are pleasures involved, but as I said, they don't last. And because we try to get them again and again and again, we use up all our energy, all our time, and a lot of money trying to get it. They always have to be renewed. The Buddha called them being in debt like having to pay a mortgage off at the bank with interest. Now, if we're lucky, quite lucky, we can pay a mortgage off before we die. But with the senses, unless we make a deliberate stop to them, trying to get our pleasure through them, we keep on doing it. There's no stopping it. We're always trying to get something. The same with physical comfort, the touch contact. We wouldn't dream of not looking for that. In fact, you'll notice it very soon, as soon as you've been sitting in this position for a while. I would like more comfort. This isn't comfortable. Where's the chair? Or I've got to move. Physical comfort. There's nothing wrong with all that. Except it's a very low level of existence. It's the instinctual and impulsive level of existence and it's never satisfying. And it does seem as if a few more people have found this out and are searching all over, everywhere they can think of, for something a little more. Now this does by not mean by any means that we shouldn't have pleasure through the senses. What it means is that we have to recognize them for what they are, a very fleeting and totally unsatisfactory way of life. 
which not only cannot keep us ever fulfilled, it cannot even fulfill us while it's happening. Because we know already, subconsciously, it's not going to last. So the fulfillment that we also subconsciously know is possible to have cannot come through the senses. Although we can try and try again, it never happens. However, the pleasure through the senses is a very valid human experience if we don't try to get fulfilled that way. It's totally valid because it's part of being a human being that we have pleasurable and very unpleasant sensual experiences. We hear things we don't want to hear. Somebody says something and we would much rather they hadn't said it. And we may touch, through the touch sensation, have painful experiences in the body. So we have both. This is, a, this is our human experience, having both. And as long as we see it for what it is, just being part of a human being, and don't try to be satisfied or fulfilled through it, then we at least know that much. The second level is the mental level, the, me the level of reason, the self-conscious one. We all know we are me, and we have the ability of abstract thinking. So we dream up ideas, how we would like the world to be. Perfectly peaceful, everybody happy, everybody loving each other, but it isn't happening. We have abstract ideas which can lead to invention. Mathematics is abstract, we can't touch it. The mind's perfectly capable of dream, dreaming up anything at all. It's like a magic trick. And you've all done it. Everybody does it. We dream up the way we think the world should operate, particularly with regard to ourselves. Of course, it doesn't do it, because we are the one that's dreaming it up. Nobody else is dreaming it up. Everybody else is concerned with themselves, not with us. This mental level is the level where we can logically think and where we can have a decent livelihood. So it's again the human experience and totally valid, but not fulfilling. It cannot fulfill because again, it doesn't have that in it which brings us to a perspective of totality, of universality, where we don't have to live within the marketplace mentality which is constantly either wanting to get or wanting to get rid of. Either I want to get something which I haven't got yet, which keeps people pretty busy, or they want to get rid of something that they already got. And that's also, of course, con uh, connected with a lot of energy expenditure. And especially when we got something that makes us particularly unhappy, we really have to get rid of that. 
and the mind churns around on it and the sentence uses I'm having a problem. Sure, people have all sorts of problems, but it's all on the mental level, on the level of reasoning and logic. It's never, there is no problem on the universal level. Who could be having a problem? The universe isn't having a problem. So the mental level is having problems. It's also having ideas, dreams and fantasies. And anyone who's ever meditated knows them all because they keep on coming up in meditation instead of being able to meditate. That happens in the beginning to everyone. The mental level does another thing. It explains our sense contact. Because the eye can only see the color and the shape. It can't see that this is a lady or a man. It can't see that this is a rose or a carnation. It's the mind that sees that. So the mind does all the explaining. And because it is geared towards looking for the pleasurable, it has an immediate reaction to what it sees or hears. It can only hear sound. It doesn't hear Mozart. It just hears sound. That's the mind saying that. And the mind is saying it, oh, that's nice, because there's a nice feeling with it. So because of all that, most people on this globe of ours are stuck to those two levels. The senses, which are constantly operating at this particular moment, you're seeing, hearing, and touching at least, probably also thinking, and the mental level, which is digesting what you hear and see. So that level, those two levels, are constantly in operation. And because they're constantly in operation, and most people don't take time out to stop them, most people don't even know there is something else. There is a subconscious desire in every single person. Sometimes it's conscious to have something more. People eventually come to that moment in their life when they say to themselves, that can't be all. There must be something else. I've got a house and a car and a partner and a child and a job, but what is else is there? Oh, I've been three times around the world and I still haven't found it. Or oh, I've got the best diet and the best yoga classes, but I still haven't found it. Or whatever it is that one has been into. That moment arises when one realizes there must be something else, but what is it and where is it? And out of that has arisen the enormous offer, uh, variety of offers of what it could possibly be. Maybe it's crystals, or maybe it's another diet, or maybe it's uh, uh, dream journeys, or maybe it's, um, well, all you have to do is read one of those magazines and you can have the whole range of offers. Actually, what it is, it's the transcendental. It's as simple as that. We don't have to keep on using just the senses and our mental explanation of it or our ideas. We can have a totally different level of consciousness. And we don't need anything outside of ourselves. And because we don't need anything outside of ourselves, we can become independent of outside conditions. 
And when we become independent of outside conditions, we have taken the first step into freedom. And freedom is something that people think they have when the government isn't too suppressive and when they are capable of moving about physically at their own will. But mental freedom is something entirely different. It's the independence of outer conditions. It doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter whether there is appreciation. It doesn't matter whether there is praise. It's very nice if they're there, but it's no longer a dependency on them. The Buddha compared the dependency on these to being a slave. We are being pushed around by the emotions and thoughts of other people. They want it this way or that way, so we're being pushed around by that. And as we're being pushed around, we have to abide by that and do whatever we think is necessary to gain the approval. That independence that we can get from the inner I, the inner being, is our first step into a freedom of a reality which far surpasses that that we know with the sense. And there is no other way to get there except through meditation. Because unless the mind stops thinking, and starts experiencing, we will always be caught again in the maelstrom of our thoughts and emotions. And as long as we're caught in the thoughts and emotions, we will not have the space nor the openness to be able to see something else. We are full of thoughts and emotions. And being full of thoughts and emotions, there's no room left for anything else. So one has to learn through the meditative path, and uh, St. Bonaventura, whom I quoted at the beginning, called it the contemplative path, but it's the same thing. We have to learn through that what it's like to stop all that that goes on in the mind. Now, anybody who has ever meditated, even for one second, knows that this is not an easy thing to do. It's a skill like any other, and it has to be learned. And it has to be learned through patience, perseverance, determination, and constant repetition. Any skill that you have ever learned in this life, you didn't learn overnight. If it is worthwhile learning, it takes time. We want to learn a skill with which we can make a living and get a decent paycheck. It takes time to learn that. Nobody falls into that without learning. This doesn't bring material pay. It brings the greatest jewel that any human being can achieve in this lifetime. It brings a totally new perspective. It brings the transcendence of the human problematic. It brings with it a recognition 
of a totality of existence which takes away our isolationism. It takes away our feeling of being separate. It takes away our feeling of being threatened. It takes eventually away all fear. These are the ideal results of it. It all starts very simply by watching one's breath. There's one other um, consideration that you should look at, and that is the fact that we spend a lot of time, a lot of energy and thought on keeping our body in order. Everybody has time to eat three times a day or more. Everybody has time to sleep seven hours or more. Everybody has time to wash the body and wash the clothes. And everybody has to have time to get money somehow to do all that. Because what we eat costs money. So we all need to spend a lot of time in keeping this body in order. And we also provide a home for the body. A roof over our head some nice and comfortable furniture, armchair, bed, kitchen to cook, bathroom to wash, everything is there. So we might come home from work and have all the comfort for the body. It sits in the most comfortable armchair. Where does the mind sit? Is it also comfortable or is it still going over all the happenings of the day, worrying about whether it was right or wrong, maybe being sorry about what happened during the day and planning tomorrow? Or is it totally within, completely at ease, contented and joyous and peaceful? Obviously, it hasn't got a home. The only home the mind can find is not a roof over the body's head. It's not the comfortable armchair. It's not the best possible mattress. The only home the mind can find is within ourselves, within the peacefulness we can establish within ourselves when we have seen far greater truth than what we see and hear and taste and touch and think. And we can't get at it, not by reading about it, not by hearing about it, only by doing it. Every single human being is capable of it. Very few try. And out of those very few who try, very few stick to it. And only those who do eventually come to a totally new perspective where the mind has finally found its own home. And having found its own home, it can be at ease and peaceful. If it has ever occurred to us that the world should really be peaceful, why is everybody shooting each other? I'm sure it has occurred to people, it occurs to practically everybody. Where is peace? There is no other place for it except in one's own heart and mind. 
And one person who becomes peaceful is the greatest help to mankind. At least they have a chance to have their own family peaceful. They have a chance to have their surrounding peaceful. We pollute our environment and we think of it in a material way and we wouldn't like that to happen. We pollute our environment far more through our minds. Every negative thought is a pollution of the environment. And we always are under the impression that our thoughts are secret. That's a complete wrong view. It's been established statistically right here in Australia that our communication through words is 7% of the whole. The rest is all through our body language, facial expression, tone of voice, and the feeling behind the words. So our thoughts are never secret. We needn't say a thing. 7% goes into words. The other 93% is us expressing ourselves through our thoughts. And our thoughts are that which pollutes our own inner environment and, of course, our outer environment. Our thoughts are that which bring about speech and action. And as long as we are dependent upon our sense contacts and that's what other people think, say and do, we can never be protected from the negativity. There has to be another dimension, and that's the third dimension. And the third dimension can only be touched and reached through meditation. Now, I think that might be sufficient to tell you why one should meditate. I will now tell you how to meditate, and then we'll do it. And as we do it, you will become easily aware of the fact that the mind is like an untrained puppy dog. It's all over the place. And then you will know what it means not to have a home for the mind. It goes here and there, but it doesn't find the ease, the peace, the joy that we think we ought to have. Well, We've got to work for it. And nobody in the whole world will give them to us. Everybody's looking for it themselves. Nobody's got it to pass around. All you're going to get here are guidelines, information. Everybody's got to do it themselves. Peace and joy are within us. So who's going to put it inside of you? Through the senses? Everybody here is old enough to have tried that. Has it worked? It can't. There's no way it can work. It can't stay with us. It always breaks down. It all starts with watching the breath. Now we use the breath 
because not only because it's a traditional method of meditation but also because breath is intrinsically connected with the mind when the mind is excited or in a hurry the breath goes fast and heavy when the mind is quite calm and at ease the breath is the same quite calm and at ease and eventually becomes so fine that it's no longer needed the breath is our method we need a method the Buddhist genius lies on one side in the fact that he gave exact methodology how to do it it couldn't be more exact and on the other side his genius lies in the fact that he was able to express the most profound truth in the simplest of language so that everybody has access to it one doesn't have to have a university education one also doesn't have to learn a foreign language we have access to it through our understanding on the mental level and then we can go past that by using the guidelines so we're going to use the breath I will give you five different methods of using the breath and it's up to you to choose the method which you think is the most suitable for you and then stick to it you need to be able and I'm sure you are able to ascertain what is suitable for my mind to use method is method by any name and it needs to be suitable suitable for one's own tendencies and the first method which I will tell you is to count it's all connected to breath the methods which I'm explaining are crutches the mind is always inclined to run off somewhere else because it wants to be entertained and also because it would like to have ego support and the only time we have ego support is when we're not talking or when our senses are not involved is when we are thinking then we know we're here so the mind is constantly at work so we need to give it as much help to stop thinking as we can the first method is counting one on the in-breath one on the out-breath two on the in-breath two on the out-breath no further than ten then back to one every time there's a distracting thought back to one not to try and figure out whether one was at four or probably already at eight or maybe even at 10 and then discuss with oneself whether it's difficult easy or pleasant or unpleasant to do but just back to one if you don't like numbers use words use the word peace a word is a word by any name it doesn't matter if you know a better word use it it doesn't matter 
If English isn't your mother tongue, count in any language you want. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is to stop thinking and start experiencing. The word peace is quite useful. Imagine that you're breathing in peace, but watch the breath doing it. And say to yourself the word peace. And imagine that you're breathing out peace. Watch the breath going out. Say the word peace. If you like, you can use two words. It's better to use just one. But if you like, you can use two if the mind won't stay at all. Breathing in love, breathing out peace. If you don't like numbers nor words, maybe you have a visual mind. People who have visual minds are usually greatly helped by that ability. Use it. We do need to use all the abilities, all our um, skills that we have. You can imagine that the breath is like an ocean wave. And the ocean wave, if you have technicolor mind, make it a beautiful color. Bright blue with silver top or whatever you like, it doesn't matter. The wave is coming in with the breath, the wave is going out with the breath. As it comes in, it smaller, gets smaller. As it goes out, it gets bigger. If you have visual mind, it may be helpful. It's very rhythmic. It may be helpful for you. If you don't have visual mind, it's useless. If you don't like any of those three, maybe you like sensations. Sensations are physical feelings. The sensation of the breath starts at the nostrils. As the breath comes in, you can follow it through wherever you become aware of the breath and the sensation. Don't search for it. You may be aware of it up the nose, at the forehead, into the throat, into the lungs, maybe even all further down. Wherever you become aware of it, notice the breath and the sensation that goes with it as it comes in and as it goes out. You may notice expansion and contraction, that physical sensation, which happens with the breath. You may not notice it. It may help you to stay within yourself as you go inward. And when you go with the out breath, don't go far away, stay right here. The further you go away with your attention, the easier it is to start thinking about the world. And I can assure you they're going to get along without us this Saturday morning very well. So we can stop thinking about them and stay right within ourselves. This is where peace and joy can be found if we try hard enough. It's not usually easy. There are some very lucky people who can do it quite easily, but they're very few and far between. Most people have to work at it over and over again. If you don't like any of these, numbers, words, picture, sensation. The fifth one is beginning, middle, end of each breath as it comes in. But don't say those words, they're much too long. The breath is much too fast for that. You can say one, two, three if you like. But the main thing is to become aware of the beginning, the middle, the end of the in-breath, beginning, middle, end of the out-breath. That does take a little more attention and concentration than the others, but it can be useful for those of you who have already meditated and have gained already a bit more concentration. Should you have been using something in the past that has been utterly successful, 
and utterly successful means that you no longer need the method but that you can already concentrate on the inner experience then use that as your starting point the method you have used but if it hasn't got together to the point where the method can be discarded then use any of these I'll repeat them first one is numbers second one is words third one is picture fourth one is sensation and fifth one is beginning middle end pick whichever one you like and stick to it none of them work like magic there is no magic in this when we start <coughs> there's a feeling of it later but not at the beginning the distracting thoughts label them give them a name you can't do anything more worthwhile for yourself don't just say thinking everybody knows they're thinking that's nothing new about thinking that's an old story we think from morning to night we dream from night to morning if anybody were to use a very valuable tool in that manner it would very soon break down and be totally useless if we had such a valuable tool that we would be working from morning to night and from night to morning we'd have to trade it in soon can't be done with the mind we've got it for the duration so we might as well turn it off once in a while so that it can regenerate the only way the mind can regenerate if we give it a chance to have a bit of peacefulness the distracting thought you can label it future or past you can label it bored disliking rejecting hoping planning worrying fearing you can also label it nonsense and you will find that 75% of the time it's true which is a very interesting experience as any meditator knows one doesn't have to believe one's thoughts and that's the very first step in daily life to gain benefit from meditation when we no longer believe every thought we have we don't have to react to every one of them and that alone already brings some peacefulness label it with the very first label that comes to your mind don't try to find the right one because that brings up new thoughts very first label that comes to your mind that's the one you use now from that you learn several things and this is a learning experience which if you continue it would be one of the most valuable things in daily life for harmony and peacefulness and also for spiritual growth as you learn to label your thoughts in the meditation if you continue that in daily life you will find that some of the thoughts are very unwholesome and create a great deal of unhappiness in yourself and as in meditation you have already learned to substitute every thought with attention on the breath you have now the chance in your daily life to substitute every unwholesome thought with a wholesome one the more we can do that the more we become at peace with ourselves 
If unwholesome thoughts arise, they bring disquiet, worry, and fear. They bring rejection, resistance. They bring what we call problems. And then, of course, they also translate to problems with others in our relationships with other people. So if we learn to substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome, our spiritual growth has started. If we don't do that, the word spiritual doesn't even apply. That's the first step. And we learn it in meditation through the labeling. And as we label, we also see that the thought dissolves because the one who is observing the thought is no longer the thinker. So we can see that we're actually being a little more in charge of our thinking process. And as we do this in daily life, we become more and more aware of the irritation caused by thinking. But that takes a little time. The next thing that we realize when we do this, this labeling, is the fact that so many of our thoughts are totally unnecessary. And they come up and they come up and they come up over and over again. And as we see that, that they are so useless, we will try to have more time for directing ourselves towards having peace of mind. And peace of mind is within us, not around us. Nowhere out there is peace of mind. It's only within. So the labeling teaches us to label in daily life and substitute. It teaches us that the observer is no longer the thinker and the thought dissolves. And we learn from it that every thought is totally impermanent and cannot be kept and therefore does not have to be identified with. Most people on this planet identify with their thinking and they think it has to be so. And by doing that, problems. If one identifies with one's thinking, while it hasn't been trained yet, it certainly has negative constantly being changed to something else and sometimes of course positive but never the peacefulness that we search for so this labeling is extremely important and helps us in the meditation and in our daily living the sitting position it's um, the legs should be kept in any position where we think we can stay a while, where we feel fairly comfortable with our legs. The um, back should be straight, but not military straight. And if one sits in a chair, the legs need, should not be crossed, but should be straight next to each other and solidly on the ground. And the back should not be resting against the backrest unless one has uh, some injury, a back injury, and needs to do that. It's, the back has to be free. It's the nerve endings. It's got to be free and straight. 
The hands can be in the lap or on the knees. The eyes should be closed. Usually the head is a little bit down. And after having sat for a while, if one isn't used to the sitting position on the floor, there will be or may be discomfort. This is a very useful learning experience. One of the most useful learning experiences we can possibly have. One of the things not to do is to grit one's teeth and think, I'm going to sit through this and if it's the last thing I do. That's not to do. Or to think, I'm going to show them I can do this. Or I'm going to show myself. Nobody needs to be shown. We don't have to prove a thing. All of us are already what we would like to be. We just don't know about it because we haven't really put enough attention on it. So we don't have to prove a thing. What we can do, though, is we can have unpleasant feelings with awareness. And that's the only useful thing to do. We learn from it that there is such contact which creates unpleasant feelings. In this case, sometimes it creates pleasant feeling, of course that we give that a name which is called pain and that the mind reacts to it by wanting to get away from it that we subconsciously or consciously want if we watch these four steps of the mind we will have got to know what goes on within us day in day out from morning to night sense contact feeling perception mental formation Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, feeling then either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. We are not concerned with neutral usually, at least it's not unpleasant, so we are concerned with pleasant or unpleasant. We give it a name and then we react. I don't like it, I don't want it, I'm going to get away from it, or I like it, I want it, I want to keep it. This needs to be experienced personally. You don't need to believe it, nor should you disbelieve it. The only thing to do is to get to know it. And as you get to know it, you will realize that that is not satisfactory, nor is it fulfilling. And that's why life is so unsatisfactory as a whole, because it doesn't contain the major ingredient of having inner peacefulness and inner joy without being dependent on outer circumstances because we react constantly. So here we have this opportunity to recognize what goes on. Touch contact, unpleasant feeling, cause pain, reaction. I want to get away from it, I don't like it. Instead of using this reaction immediately, know the four steps and then take the mind off the unpleasant feeling and put it back on the breath and you will have learned that one only knows that where one puts one's mind and then of course the unpleasant feeling takes priority again so you do it one two or three times and as many times as you can and then the mind says it's all very interesting but I can't sit like that and then you move gently slowly so that you don't disturb your own mind a lot and don't disturb the neighbors too much 
and admit to yourself that you have become the victim of your own unpleasant feelings. And the first time you admit that, you will recognize it every time it happens. It happens all day long to everybody. Either we become the victim of our own unpleasant feeling and want to get away, or we become the victim of our pleasant feeling and want to keep it. Once having seen that clearly, you can never ever deny it again. Without that, we'll never know where to find fulfillment. It's not in the senses, it's not in the mind. It's beyond that. It's transcendental. It transcends the mental reaction. It transcends the sense contact. And we have words for all these things, but we've got to experience them. So this is the sitting position. This is watching the breath. And this is labeling your thoughts. These are the three important things to do in meditation. Now, before we actually do it, are there any questions by anyone? What to do, how to do, why to do it, and so on. Anything at all? Then we'll just stand up for a moment to stretch our legs before we start. suppose everybody knows now what it means when we say that the mind that hasn't been trained in meditation is like an untrained puppy dog all over doing this and that coming back to what's supposed to do and then taking off again we're going to do walking meditation now and we'll do that downstairs there's a large room I understand and um, what we'll have to do is go parallel to each other so everybody uses if it's a if it's a room like this okay bigger like bigger than this okay um go from one end of the room to the other and back so that you don't intersect with each other or go in the same parallel direction and as we do walking meditation, we keep the eyes open, but down, and they go automatically in front of the feet. If they are on the foot, that's very distracting. So don't try to look at the foot. They automatically go in front of the foot. The hands should be together in front of the body or in back. As you start out, make a determination to be concentrated, be grateful that you have this opportunity and watch the movement of the foot no longer the breath the movement of the breath at that time is of no concern we're all breathing because we're alive so we'll just forget it at that time and just use the movement of the foot and we'll do it in a six-fold motion which encourages the mind to be extremely attentive which means up the heel, up the foot, into the air, forward in the air, 
down on the heel, down on the foot, which means two going up, two in the air, and two coming down. And to start out with, you can count one, two, three, four, five, six. As you get used to it, you can drop the counting or you can keep it going. It doesn't matter. Only raise the second foot when the first one is completely on the ground because otherwise there will be two movements. So as the first one is completely down again, that's when the second one starts. When you come to the end of the hall and have to turn around, watch the turning around, which you can do in the most appropriate fashion. Don't have to try that to do that with the six-fold movement. It doesn't work too well. So just turn around. When there is a distracting thought, it's extremely helpful to stand still for a moment, make a new determination and start all over again. It doesn't matter how often one stands still. It's of no concern to anyone else. Everybody is concerned with their own meditation. Our own meditation brings our own inner growth. Our own inner growth is then available to everyone around us who can take advantage of that. If we haven't got our own inner growth, there's nothing we can give. First we have to have it, then we have something to give. Now, is that clear what to do in the walking meditation? I'll ring the bell when it's time to come back up here. If there's any question about what to do in the walking meditation. Quite clear? Okay, yes? Okay, so better to put the shoes on now huh? to do that. And then when you hear the bell, we'll come back up here again. All right? I will tell you about the immediate benefits of meditation. There are some immediate benefits which you will get from meditation, whether you're getting concentrated or not. And if one hasn't practiced, one doesn't get concentrated. The mind is used to thinking, and it co continues to have its old habits. And it will react and explain whatever it has contacted. So. There are benefits which you will get immediately, which is uh, important to know, because otherwise one doesn't stay with it and just tries it once in a while and again here and there, but it will never amount to anything. Because if we don't do it every day, the mind will not be able to stretch you can compare it to yoga exercises. If you do them day after day, eventually the body will stretch sufficiently so that it's quite easy to touch the toes. If you stop it again, the body gets contracted again and it's going to be difficult again. The same with the mind. The mind is contracted if it cannot reach the third dimension. 
And if we do try to stretch it, we'll have to continue to stretch it until one day it remains that way. The immediate benefits of meditation, the first one I've already mentioned, being able to label one's thoughts and continue doing that in everyday life, to recognize the unwholesome and not to justify them anymore because that's what everybody does. I can't stand that person because he or she is impossible, so it's all right to be negative. It doesn't hurt anyone except oneself. When one recognizes that, eventually, then one works hard to substitute. The first thing is the recognition, and that only happens through that labeling, through that recognizing what's in the mind. The substitution is also learned in the meditation, because if you don't substitute the distracting thoughts, with attention on the breath, well, there's no meditation, is there? So substitution has to be learned, otherwise there's no meditation. So we learn those two things automatically if one meditates. The third thing is that one makes good karma. Karma is our intention, and if the intention is truly one, of wanting to grow spiritually, of wanting to become peaceful, if the intention is really there, then good karma is automatically made with that intention. Whether it actually comes to anything or not, that's the second step. So there are three immediate benefits. The fourth immediate benefit is the antidote for laziness and drowsiness in the mind, which is called our third hindrance. Everybody's got it. Procrastination falls under that. It's all right, I'll do it tomorrow. Or it's okay, everything's fine the way it is, doesn't really matter. All these thoughts which keep one from action, mental or physical, are all under that heading of loss and torpor or laziness and drowsiness in the mind. And that laziness and drowsiness has been compared by the Buddha to being in prison, imprisoned by one's own contracted mind. The mind does not, that cannot expand because of that, that cannot see universality, totality, and is only concerned with individual concerns and with that egocentricity, I want my things to work out all right. They can't, because there's a whole world out there with which we have to relate. And if it is con concerned only with this very limited person that has the limitations of the body and the limitations of the mind, peace and joy will not ensue. So the mind which is imprisoned by its own laziness and drowsiness is a hindrance which keeps us from experiencing the possibilities, the potential which we have in mind. It has been said that the potential of our mind that we actually use 
can be compared to the potential of our body if we were just to move our little finger like that. That's the whole potential of our mind that we're actually using compared to the physical potential. Obviously, we're using far more of our body and we're also more concerned with it, which eventually might, if one continues meditating, stop. And one will realize, and this is another benefit which comes about very quickly, realize that the mind is in charge. If your mind hadn't told you this morning to come here, your body wouldn't be here. Who is in charge? Who should be looked after more carefully? The one who's the servant or the one who's in charge? Now this is a recognition which comes about through meditation pretty quickly. And thereby, the sloth and torpor that is a very natural phenomenon of the human mind is counteracted over and over again by the initial application to the meditation subject by trying to be concentrated. The more sloth and torpor there is in the mind, the less clarity. We see things through a fog. The sloth and torpor is the fog. As the fog lifts, things become a little clearer and they expand, we see a little more, a little bit further than just the optical eye. The optical eye cannot do very much, can it? It can't look around corners, it cannot look beyond the horizon, it can't even see ultraviolet light. The bees see it, we don't. So our optical eye isn't really much, but we keep on believing it all the time. So we have immediate benefits from the meditation. We make good karma, we counteract automatically sloth and torpor every time we try to put the mind on the meditation subject. We learn to recognize content of mind without which spiritual path does not exist. We learn to substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome. And we also learn that the mind is not reliable. And then maybe that will take us to the conclusion that the world the way it is is nothing to be surprised at. Mind just isn't reliable. And we can very easily use ourselves as the model for that. We are no different from everybody else. It's exactly that way. And when we see our own mind not being reliable, then we won't run after everything that the mind wants us to do. There's another very important and immediate benefit, namely purification. If we really would like to know anything about this other dimension, which takes us beyond the senses and the mental rational, purification is of the essence. And purification is of mind and heart, which means thought and emotion. And I will explain that this afternoon in a little more detail as what I'm going to say at this moment. But just this much, one second of concentration is one second of purification. 
We are in the lucky position that we can only do one thing at a time with our mind. We can either think negatively, have dis dislike, boredom, wanting things, hoping for things, rejecting them, or we can be concentrated. We can't do both at the same time. So should we be concentrated for one second only, that one second is a purifying second, which otherwise we wouldn't have had. So the more often we sit down and do it, and the longer we can keep the concentration going, the more purification takes place. The purified mind is a mind with less fog, less desire, less rejections, resistances, worries and fears. The mind which will eventually be able to expand beyond the horizon that stops at one's own nose. And that purification is a necessary factor for being able to see the third dimension. So this is an automatic purification which we can of course and have to support in our daily life. I will explain that this afternoon, how we support this purification. But one of the things I've already mentioned, how we support it in daily life, and that's by labeling our thought. Now there's another aspect of thinking that we also can become aware of almost immediately, our thought patterns. If you have been labeling these times that we have set together here and have found that the label remains the same over and over again, you got to know your thought pattern. And you may then be able to make deductions from that, what is useful and what is not. When we get to know our thought patterns, which may be constant planning, or they may be constant dislike, or constantly wanting something else, whatever it is, if it is a repetition over and over again, we get to know something about ourselves. The Buddha's path leads to calm and insight, and insight is always about ourselves. And this is the most important thing to know, what goes on within ourselves. So that's what another benefit. So you can see that just by sitting there and trying your best and not hoping for it, but actually trying, you have a number of benefits which you wouldn't have otherwise. Before we're going to have the lunch break, we have an opportunity now to ask questions or make comments, anything at all that you have heard or not heard, or anything that you have done in your meditation or not done whatever it may be, anything that has any relevance to leaving the two first dimensions behind or recognizing them for what they are. So any questions or comments that you may have, now is the time for them. And if you would like to attain wisdom, the Buddha said, you have to ask a lot of questions. Thank you. 
find detachment. Well, it's not very difficult, actually. It can be answered in half a sentence. Your motivation is your intention. And you can check your intentions, whether they are good ones or bad ones. And then let go of the results. Action for action's sake. As long as you want results, you're in the world. As long as you have let go of wanting the results, you're learning the spiritual path. And if you ever try it, you will find what a relief it is. Sounds alright, but it's completely wrong what you're saying. I'm asking for the answer. Yes, totally, totally wrong. You got it all mixed up. <laughs> you can have the intention of growing the best tomato plant in the world, but then when you get the worst one, that's what happens. Yes. If you get the best one, that's fine. If you get the worst one, that's fine too. That's right. And that relieves all stress and strain. No, the action needs to be done with total attention to the action. The only way you'll ever meditate is if you pay total attention to the meditation subject. But don't sit there and say, I want to get a third dimension, or I want to get wonderful feelings. Then you can't meditate. You've got to be mindful of the action. I think that's clear. No? Because you might think that growing tomato plants is a good idea, just as you're thinking that maybe meditation is a good idea. But if you sit there wanting the results from it, you'll never meditate. Thank you very much. <laughs> if anyone would like to have a personal interview about their meditation, they can get a sheet to fill out um, at the, from Anya, who was regis registering you. She'll give you a sheet. And you can bring that back and give it to her after lunch and we'll have time from 5.30 to 6.30 to have personal interviews um, if you like. You don't have to. You don't even have to meditate. You don't have to do anything. 
We're going to have a lunch break from 12 to 1.30 and meet here again at 1.30. There are some books here which are for sale. Three of them contain a whole meditation course, a 10-day meditation course and the discourses given and in some cases the questions asked. If you can't get to a meditation course, this is the next best thing. And maybe at this uh, moment I can also mention that if you really want to learn to meditate without a proper meditation course of at least a week or more, it just won't happen. The mind just hasn't got that ability to switch from the world to that which it contains without the world. It's just too difficult for the mind to switch itself while it is concerned with all the mundane matters of the things we like and dislike that it can then change that quickly. So one needs more time. So coming here is like testing the temperature. And then when that is um, satisfactorily tested, then a meditation course is necessary. So the next best thing would be a book containing a course, and the other possibility is coming to a course, and I'll be giving one at Wat Buddha Dhamma from 7th to the 20th of February, and people can come only for the first week. So if that's of any interest to you, Anya can also give you the information about that. And now we'll go and have our lunch, and I would like to suggest to you that you use this time now, the lunch break, also for mindfulness. Mindfulness is the heart of meditation, which means being attentive, which means eating while eating, walking while walking, or, as has been mentioned, washing dishes while washing dishes. And if one is attentive to what one is doing, one can't want the results at the same time. We can only do one thing at a time. And if you really would like to meditate, that kind of attention is the basis for it. So the more of it you can use outside of the meditation time, the easier the meditation time will be. We only have the one mind. We can't divide it in two. Not the one that sits on the pillow and would like to have complete concentration, become totally peaceful, and the other mind that walks around outside and thinks of everything under the sun except that what the body is doing or what the mind is doing. We can't divide it up like that. So mindfulness can be, in the first instance, directed toward your body movements and actions, which will be extremely helpful for the next meditation session. I wish you a very pleasant lunch.